Well, hey there, donks. There we go. Let's look at this, huh? You like this? Remember this guy? Manos Ariba. This is Barbus, everybody. This is my trusty sidekick. He's a great dog. Uh, I like him a lot. i put this down here so I don't get distracted. Uh, hi, everybody. You remember this guy if you watch these old live chats. This is the Luke Thomas... Um, well, what do you want to call it? This is the Luke Thomas uh, live chat here, episode two. I know I am late. I apologize for being late. I had a bunch of stuff going on, but I want to bring old trusty Barbus, and I want to get this going. So without further ado, let's do it. All right, and we are back. Okay, sorry for being late, guys. I had a bunch of stuff happening today. Um... I had some meetings, they just ran long. What am I going to do? But I'm here, I'm ready to go. Thank you so much for your patience. It's genuinely appreciated. I know you're like, oh, it's same old Luke Thomas doing the same old thing again. Um, sort of, but not really. Like, I'm really trying to make a better effort. You can see the camera quality is better, the audio quality is better, streaming quality is better. Like, there are some real updates and some real differences. So, just keep that in mind. Okay, uh, as you know, I put a thread up yesterday to get your questions in. Let's see how many there are. 311. Like the band from Omaha. Um, ones at the top get priority, but not exclusivity. I always encourage folks to like them or not, but um, so there you have it. Okay? Again, one more time. Sorry for being late. We'll go for about an hour and some change today. Yeah? All right. And I've got my trusty. Let me see what I can see here. I got my trusty Washington, D.C. coffee mug. All right. Let's do this, donks. Let's do this. And again, thank you so much for um, for waiting. Sorry about that. Okay. How do you think... Do this is from Ali Dagoon. First question. How do you think Dominic Cruz fits into the current bantamweight picture? Do you believe he can win a title again? Well, you never want to count anybody out, especially somebody as special as Dominic Cruz. The only thing that would give me pause is... When someone misses that much time and then comes back and they look that good, you're like, wow, man, they can, they, they can do something really special. Uh, and he can, and he did. On the other hand, he's now missed an extraordinary amount of time. He's doubled up on that, essentially. And so that begins to get a little concerning. His last fight was December of 2016. We're headed towards December of 2019. And he hasn't fought since then. And, then, and a big function of that has been injury layoff. It's like, I can understand. Um, I mean, here, here, the, here are his years competing. Fought twice in 2011, no, not zero times 2012, zero times 2013, once in 2014, zero times in 2015, then three times in 2016. So 2011 and, and 2010 and 2016 were great years, and everything else in between and since has been non-existent. I mean, look, where do I say he fits in? You know, to be gone that long and to still be, where is he ranked, seventh in the division, it's kind of... Frankly, I think it's unfair to the other contenders. It's not that I don't think Dominic Cruz could come back and not beat some of these guys, but it's just a little weird where, if, if remember, contendership is designed to measure who is most deserving of the next shot at the title in that respective division, pound for pound being obviously a little bit different. You know, sitting him at seven with Jimmy Rivera, you know, Rivera's had his ups and his downs, but he's been out there. I don't know that I would really agree with that. The answer is, um, as far as I can tell, 
you know, could he win a title again? I would never say no. I would find that very unlikely. And frankly, what I would say is in his in his defense, like if he did so, if he came back and won a title, that would be one of the most like incredible stories in MMA. I mean, just the fact that he came back before and did it or defended it or whatever it was. I forget the exact. Oh, they they, they stripped him right because it was uh, um, yeah, because he won it back against Dillashaw in in 2016. The fact that he did that is frankly miraculous. To do that basically twice, not with the same devastating kinds of injuries, but although pretty bad, to do that twice would be, you know, the stuff of le- I mean, already was the stuff of legend. Uh, it's it's just hard. It's hard to imagine being able to top that. So, um, where does he come back, or where, where does he stand? You know, Faber's still in the top 15, so you would imagine he'd be in that space, but, you know, maybe somewhere around 10-ish in terms of his level and ability and who he could beat. Um, could he beat a Pedro Munoz? Maybe. Could he beat a Rafael Sunsau? I don't know. And then you get to the top of that division, like a Sanhagen or a Peter Jan. I don't know, man. Those guys are good. But it'd be very, very foolish to count out Dominic Cruz as well. All right? Very foolish. So I would say he could probably reach ranked spaces. Elite ranked spaces seem hard to come by, not impossible. And then um, the upper upper bound version of that, like a championship, seems virtually impossible. But Cruz has already proven he can do extraordinary things. So keep that in mind. All right, next one. How do you think Israel would fight John Jones considering he wouldn't have the reach or height advantage? Which means Israel can't lean back from straight punches, won't be able to arm post, and he may struggle establishing distance, and therefore won't be able to implement the feints he the, he heavily relies on. That's an interesting question. Well, here's one thing I would say. You can feint still a lot because you'd be doing it at, you could do it at kickboxing range, in which case that would be no problem. Um... Obviously, the big question would be him struggling with the takedown, right? One of the things that John's, like, really so good at is he can, like, faint himself, reach for a leg, and then when the hands come down, he can then club over the top of the neck for that uh, knee tap. He's really quite good at that, and he can reach so far. Now, John wouldn't have a, a huge reach advantage. It'd be 80 versus 84, so it wouldn't be enormous, but obviously the takedowns and then the threat on bottom, or I should say, I should say on top, on the ground, would be extraordinary. I, I have a hard time seeing right now how Adesanya wins that in that particular space. At range, though, um, that's interesting, because what is John really known for? What he really is good at is single-strike high variance. He's really good at throwing a jab, and then the next shot would be one of the, divide yourself into quadrants, so top and bottom, left and right, and then what he'll do is he commonly doesn't double up on the same side, although occasionally he'll do that as like a as a as a trick. But what he likes to do is you'll notice John's not a big combination striker, right? It's not really the way he throws. The way he throws is uh, I'll throw from one side, and then it will be any other. Uh, part of the quadrant. So if he throws from this side, it'll be either this side or a kick on the bottom. If he throws up here, it'll be the, you know some other version of the opposite. So he he tends to just really vary it up. If it's a jab, then it's a cross. If it's a cross, then it's a leg kick. If it's a leg kick, then it's a teep. If it's a teep, then it's an uppercut, right? There's you just there's no pattern to it all, which makes it very hard to to uh, you know, 
handle. And then on top of that, what he's doing with it is he's very accurate. His timing is good. Obviously, he has good command of range and distance. So to beat him, you have to get around that. How would Adesanya get around that with his feints? The feinting would have to be... The feinting would have to take away John's rhythm in throwing the single strike high variance. Like if you go back and you watch the Gustafson fight, this is why I couldn't believe some of the criticisms of that one afterward. They're like, oh, you know, he looked slow. He looked off. I'm like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't look slow or off at all. He may have been a little more judicious with his first round offense, but he didn't look slow or off to me. And um, Tiago Santos was able to disrupt that a little bit where John was really hesitant to throw. And apparently, um, my understanding is, in talking to some folks, John was concerned with linear attacks as a surprise from Santos. So Santos throws those big winging hooks. What he was really worried about was, you know, okay, I get out of the way of those, I dive in, he's going to throw some uppercut or some knee to intercept, which is why he didn't go for more takedowns, apparently. Um, Okay. I would just say, in thinking about this, if they tie up, you know, Santos was so physical that he was able to negate a lot of things. Uh, you even saw uh, Anthony Smith being able to negate a lot of things. I do worry about Adesanya in terms of that, but in terms of the striking at range, it is a bit of a mystery in terms of how that would go. Because if you're Jones, you have to take away that that uh, fainting where Adesanya is setting up something and it looks completely different in the end about what hits you and then he's gone. And if you're John, you kind of have to get into a rhythm where it's bop, 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 bop. It's just there's no pattern to it all. And it's single strike. So who would who would stop the other one from being able to implement that style of either fainting or the single strike high variance rhythm striking? The fainting could do it provided you could main the fainting will always beat someone who doesn't faint. But you have to be able to execute that without worrying about the takedown threat or um, being able to stop it or being able to stop it before it starts. And and given how good John is of a wrestler, at least what he's shown historically, maybe he's slowing down. That would give me some pause. This is why I don't think the fight is right right now. He Adesanya needs to get a little bit bigger, and he needs to... You know, there's still some takedown defense issues. I, I said this before. If you look at um, his takedown defense in open space where he's like down blocking and firing underhooks and he's against the fence and he's splitting his base, he's very, very hard to take down. He's very hard to take down. But if you get him initiating a scramble where you're chain wrestling stuff together, well, then he begins to make mistakes because that's the kind of thing that only somebody who's been wrestling a really long time would be good at. So... It's, an inter- it's a great question. I'd have to think more about it. It's a great question. But that's what you'd be up against. Single strike high variance versus the fainting. The fainting should win, but the fainting can be taken away by virtue of the threat of the attack of the wrestling. And then him, John can go backwards and forwards, but I think he prefers to go backwards or counter-strike anyway. I've seen this question a lot. Uh, I, people call it into my radio show about it. I, I find it very funny. Someone says, do you think Joanna's new additions are what is causing her not to make 115 anymore. So let me back up a couple steps here. Number one, she made 115 and a half. Good. Number two, um, I saw some folks being like, why did the media bring this up? Dude, let me tell you something. If you're in media, especially if you're in Tampa for covering this event, and you didn't cover this story, you'd be fired. You'd be fired. 
it's insane to think you shouldn't cover the story. Not about the new additions or something like that, but the, the her anatomy. But about the idea about her. Dude, she went to the UFC a week out from a main event saying, I don't know if I can make weight. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can't. Okay? Understand. She's lost three of her last four across, across two weight classes. Granted, she's been fighting champions, quite literally. But she's lost three of her last four. The one she has a win against in Tisha Torres is on a historic four-fight losing streak. Okay? Then she comes to the UFC and she says, I can't make weight. Dude, that's a story. That's a story. Then the UFC spends days contacting people like Angela Hill, who confirmed she was contacted for this, to either fill in at 115 or 125. Um... Then there was all other kinds of wrinkles to the story, which was WME uh, reps her. Like, how, okay, so WME owns UFC, but they rep her. Whose interests are they really serving in this particular regard? I find that very fascinating. Talking about Michelle Waterson. Then she decides, oh, you know what? I'm going to try and make it. I had Michelle Waterson on the show. She told me, on my show, she told me UFC went to her management team last week saying, we don't know if Ioana's going to make weight. How do, you not, how do you not consider that a story? And folks are like, well, she told the media all week she was going to make weight. So fucking what? So, so what? Fighters say shit all the time. You got to know when to like, have a healthy degree of skepticism. And them talking about their weight is always a healthy degree of skepticism. You can't say that they're not going to make it. She made it, right? Okay, good. But being like, well, she said she was going to make it. And then being like, case closed. You get fired for doing shit like that. You, any editor would be well within the rights to be like, get on a plane and come home. Like, what are you doing? Like, if you can't. Oh, well, they said it. <laughs> uh, my work here is done, and they say shit all the time. What is that supposed to mean? So, in any event, like, I got people being pushed back, being like, why did the media blow this up? Because they blew it up. You and you telegraphed that this fight was nearly called off. How are you not going to cover that? All right, which just drove me nuts. Now, that's the first part. The second part is about her uh, breast, <clears throat> breast implants. All right. Here's what I'm going to say about this. I don't actually think that the question is irrelevant because it's not, especially if you had gotten to a catchweight position, right? If you'd gotten to a catchweight position, that would have been actually quite interesting because initially the reports were Michelle Waterson was refusing to do a catchweight, and folks are like, why is she doing that? Well, to me, it's like, where is the catchweight? If the catchweight is like 118, that's interesting. You could do that, probably. If the catchweight's 120, that's a different story. Um, because you would then be having a situation where Waterson told me she'll balloon up to about 127 or so come fight day. And you're, you would imagine if you're Joanna and you're struggling to get to 118, you're going to blow up well past 130. Okay? So you're spotting that person a lot of extra weight, and let's just be real about this, I'm sure Michelle's going to strike on the feet, but I'm guessing a big part of this is going to be the takedown, or at least the attempt on the takedown, and then spotting somebody who's got good takedown defense, that much extra weight, not smart. Not smart. And you're, if you're Michelle Waterson, you're 33, yo. Like, this is the time. If you're going to make a move on that title, clock's ticking. Now's the time. So I was actually sympathetic to that, but uh, to her not taking it, depending on what the number was. But the flip side of that is, if you're missing weight by like a pound, two pounds, three pounds, folks are going to ask, what about some of your cosmetic surgeries? In that sense, if she had missed, I don't mind that the question was raised because people are going to nitpick anything they could find. But let's be real. There's a bunch of y'all out there who are horn dogs who think this is like the most relevant question related to 
this particular issue when it is not. Folks, have y'all never dated a girl who had breast implants or been around one or talked to one? It weighs about the same as breast tissue, right? And just to verify that, I actually went and looked this up. Together, depend. I mean, and by the way, like it wasn't like she stapled some enormously uh, outrageous, you know, comic book Jessica Rabbit style alterations on top of her. She looks relatively the same. Slight alteration. It wasn't some dramatic change. And by the way, like this is what this conversation ends up being. It's like, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's sit here and discuss a, you know, a, a, <laughs> a fighter's anatomy, man. It's just a wild thing. It's just. Some of y'all need to get out more, but okay. It weighs about the same as breast tissue. Uh, combined, probably somewhere around a pound and some change. Not much, y'all. Not much. Moreover, you have seen other fighters who have had breast augmentations and been able to make weight in the same weight class, no problem. It's, it's, not, it's not a real problem. It's not a real problem. Some of y'all just want an excuse to talk about titties. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Right, you you need to get some fresh air. You know, head to the mall, go do some shopping, read a book, chill out. It's not that again. I don't think the question's irrelevant, but it was like I had people just blowing me up about it. Like, what about that? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, half of y'all are typing that question in your pants uh, without any pants. Chill, chill on that one, yeah. And sweet, merciful Jesus, she made it anyway. So what are you going to do? I wouldn't mind hearing your opinion on the South Park Blizzard NBA controversy surrounding China. Which, by the way, has a complete and total MMA tie-in. You know, you know... I'm going to put this over here. Because I want to separate from my other feed. You know the UFC is looking at this scenario and being like, Ooh, how do we navigate this space? What are we going to do to not get wrapped up? in something like this, because it's coming. It's coming. Now, they're pretty good about deflecting it, and most people don't expect the same kind of behavior from a fight promotion as they would from the NBA, but suffice to say, there it is. Um, Okay. I find this whole thing uh, pathetic, uh, to be quite honest with you. You had all these people... I don't know if Greg Popovich has spoken out about it, but Steve Kerr, who I had tremendous respect for, and I suppose on some level I still do. Um, his father, her, yeah, his father was a professor at AUB, American University of Beirut, where uh, my mother attended. So you know, I have a little bit of, um, I don't know, kinship is not quite the right word, but as an American who has ties to Beirut, I found a little bit of intrigue in that. And um, in any event. Uh, and, and all these pundits, dude, these pundits on ESPN, they are, I mean, you want to talk about empty suits. Wow. <laughs> there is nothing to them. Nothing to them. There are, this has been such a moment to out frauds, right? Like you just turn on the light and you could see all of the roaches all in one go. It has been a remarkable moment. Okay. Here's my basic view on this. If you guys have not been paying attention, the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted support for the Hong Kong protesters, and it caused a shitstorm of epic proportions. What happened was the Chinese government pushed back. They canceled preseason games, not all of them, but some of the airing of them on their, their major channels. Uh, 
They threatened any number of different actions. It has caused ripple effects. The Guangzhou Lions play the Washington Wizards here down the street. And uh, there are protesters everywhere. By the way, the Washington Wizards, another cowardly organization, they said that they had not kicked out any protesters. We got people on film being kicked out for protesting. So they're liars. Then you had other owners carrying water for the Chinese government saying, well, yeah, that was a really despicable thing to be tweeting. Uh, Adam Silver came out and tried to thread the needle saying, you know, we don't necessarily support these worldviews. We can't really adjudicate all these disputes. But Daryl Morey has a right to speak his mind. It's like Adam Silver... What are you talking about? In 2017, you moved the All-Star game to fucking New Orleans because of a, uh, a bathroom bill, uh, which, by the way, was a stupid bill. I'm not going to support the bill. But you moved, you moved the, new, the, the game out of North Carolina because, you know, the NBA doesn't stand for that. And now you stand for a fucking country that's rounding up Uyghur Muslims, harvesting their organs, putting them in. And this is not my imagination. This is well-documented putting them in concentration camps that has an authoritarian regime who monitors all their citizens, uses extraordinary technology to suppress the rights of people. That's the time you, you want to say you're lazy fair? Get the fuck out, man. What, what, a, what a ridiculous... What a, I mean, you could not have found bigger frauds if you had tried. Not one of these people, aside from Daryl Morey, who even knows how much he actually cares, out here like saying the obvious. <laughs> Yo, these Hong Kong protesters... And by the way, did you guys see the memorandum at ESPN? We talk about this in MMA all the time, dude. ESPN is not here to challenge whoever they broadcast, whether it's UFC or NBA or Major League Baseball or whatever. They, they're not there to challenge them. They are there to promote their interests. They are an accelerant of their interests, not a disinfectant. I've been saying that about UFC. It is quite clear about NBA now. There was a memorandum that was circulated being like, you can talk about this because who, who, hey, you can't ignore it, obviously. But don't mention why the people in Hong Kong are protesting. Like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> um, here's why. People in Hong Kong, a, a, a guy and his uh, significant other, I believe they traveled to Taiwan. He is believed to have murdered her, and there's no extradition treaty. The Hong Kong government tries to establish some kind of law, or a, or a bill anyway. They want to propose a bill that would allow for extradition. The problem was, the way it was worded, it would have allowed China to have extradition rights over those citizens, among a number of other problems, and the people in Hong Kong said no. They said no. Dude, this is the easiest moral layup I've ever seen in sports. This is, this is if you can't get this one right, you can't get them right. And, and I got, it's so funny, man. These people like Bomani Jones and the other ones who hector the free world about all its problems. And I'm sympathetic to many of his views. I don't even think he's wrong necessarily. Right, and then coming out there and be like, "Well, they do things differently in China." Oh, I'm sorry, differently. Did you mean concentration camps? Is that when you said differently? Is that what you meant? Because I, when I think differently, I think like parliamentary democracy versus other forms, constitutional democracies. I don't think concentration camps. And this is not me. This is not me making up. This is widely, widely documented across the left and the right. This is not a this is this is not even a partisan issue. If you can't side with them openly without equivocation, you are a fucking fraud, man. You are a fraud. And you don't deserve a microphone and you don't deserve to be uh, in, in ownership and you don't this is it's it's like I can't believe. I can't believe we th this is this hard, you know. <laughs> They found old old tweets from Steve Kerr being like, if you won't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, it turns out you'll fall for real bad reasons. 
and, and the NBA posturing like we're the super woke fucking league, man. I, I it is what a what a revelation this whole thing has been. What a revelation, dude! This is a layup. This is a layup. Imagine being like the Tiananmen Square situation, being like, <laughs> I don't know, those guys in the tanks have a point. What? No, they don't. And it's not just the NBA. It is, or Activision Blizzard, or, or I mean, Versace, Givenchy, Zara, they have bended the knee. Marriott has bended the knee. Um, from hotels to airlines to app makers to Google to uh, all of them have decided. Like, there was this big belief years ago that if we did work in a country like that, we could not only raise people out of poverty, but if you engage in sort of these market reforms, that essentially our shared values will be imposed on them. Dude, that shit is not. That is clearly not correct. If anything, what is happening is you have these companies who see 1.4 billion consumer base, and they've decided, you know what? Let's um, let's just do what they say. Let's just do what they say. Apple, worst among them, by the way. Uh, if anything, much worse than that. Apple took away an app that allowed protesters to figure out where the police were, and by the way, also residents of Hong Kong to avoid any skirmishes. Because the Chinese government was like, well, there's violent acts being, uh, you know, the police are being attacked. Which, by the way, it turns out there's no evidence for. They just did it because the communist government told them to. Right? Instead of exporting our democratic values, we have imported our authoritarian values. You had Richard Jefferson on ESPN yesterday being like, you know what? At the end of the day, they really just want, players just want to play the game. Shut the fuck up, Richard. You guys out there wearing, and I'm not against it. I'm not in any way against it. Out there wearing shirts like I Can't Breathe when the dude uh, unfortunately got killed for selling Lucy's outside the, in, in, New York, in Staten Island, outside the, uh, Eric Garner, I believe is his name. Like, I'm not even, I'm not mad at that at all. But if you're going to do that, and then you can't call this, and I don't, you don't have to have an, an opinion on every single world skirmish, but that's a big market with an obvious problem, and now all of a sudden y'all are tight-lipped? Frauds. Frauds, one and all, man. Frauds. Frauds. And the UFC's got some issues to figure out too, man. Um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how you're supposed to hold it against the average Chinese person. Like what role do they play in all this? Probably very little. Um, you know, it's a huge diverse country and these are complicated issues, but on the other hand, Jesus Christ, what, what a revelation, what a revelation this has been. You can't get this one right, buddy. (laughs) Maybe, 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 you know, look, apartheid South Africa, they just do government different. And Viacom, by the way, is in trouble too because of South Park. Because they want to do business there. Disney, same thing. Unbelievable. All right. Uh, do you happen to notice that Brendan Schaub, according to this person, plagiarizes every, <laughs> everything you say about MMA? Answer it, Dunk. No, I have not noticed that. I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe that to be true at all. Uh, certainly, I probably have an influencing factor on him. Uh, he watches my stuff. Uh, I, would, I would hope that there's enough value to it that it might be persuasive. But do I think he's just, you know, nakedly aping everything that I say? No, I don't think that's the case. Also, let me say something about this. Um, you know, look, he says some things I completely disagree. It's so funny. It's like when we disagree, people are like, you guys disagree. What, what, what the controversy there? And now all of a sudden he's accused of plagiarizing me. Like, which is it? We, we disagree too much or we agree too much? But neither here nor there. 
any of you who ever want a career in media, you would be lucky to have a champion like Brendan Schaub in your life. You'd be lucky. Here's what really gets you ahead in your career. Hard work, determination, ability, luck, and champions. People who are in positions ahead of you that will champion your career. I have one of those at SiriusXM right now. She does a great job for me. Champions me in every meeting. Um, I got the job at Showtime. I'll just say this because Brendan Schaub championed me to them. That we had that podcast that we did in DC that went really well. They kind of liked everything they saw there. But would that have gotten me a job? But for Brendan Schaub being like, "Hey, this is somebody we should look into," and then every step of the way taking care of me about it, Pro- probably not. That's what you need in life. You need people that loyal to you that you can level up in this world. Because without champions like that in, in media, where everyone is pulling the ladder up behind them, he didn't pull the ladder up behind him. He set it down for me. And you want me to hear, you know, you want me to think ill of a person who does, did that for me? Why would he do that if, why, why, why would he do that if, if all he was, he didn't, if you were just plagiarizing, you would never need to do that. Um, he, he never, ever pulled the ladder out behind himself for me. He didn't, he didn't even have to leave it down. He chose to, to make, uh, and by the way, he could have just been like the man over at Showtime, but he decided to share the wealth, help me out and expand their strengths. I I hope. And he didn't have to do any of that. He did. He never, ever had, you know how grateful I am for that man. So y'all can think what you want about him. I know what the truth is about him. All right. Should the interim belt look different? It seems it has a lower value as an undisputed belt, yet it is a major achievement. No, because the interim belt can ultimately become the real belt. So why would they make it different? You know? Yes, it does have a lesser value. I mean, that part is true. But, nah. It's just that, look, here's the trick to not having... Really, what your question underscores is that... um, there's too many of them and have been too many of them in circulation. Make it rare enough so that you don't really have to consider this. Because if it's around so much that you then be, begin to have to say, um, well, geez, I mean, we need to start creating some separation between them. The problem there is the amount of them in circulation and the length in circulation, less so that they actually need to be different. If, if, you, if you rarely saw an interim belt, you might treat it like a novelty still, but you wouldn't have these concerns you know, bubbling up. Good question. With the UFC beginning larger ventures into China, do you think we could see a company-wide censorship on critiquing China in an organization that has always prided itself on always letting its independent contractors say whatever they want? For sure. Don't you remember? God, what was the exact setup? I have to go back and look at it. But uh, Dan Hardy had some kind of pro, I want to say pro-Tibetan tattoo. And when the fight poster was used in China, they had airbrushed it out. I'm getting some of the details on that wrong, but there was, I distinctly recall he had some kind of tattoo that was offensive to the Chinese government that they airbrushed off. And um, I don't know if it was pro-Tibetan or, or, or exactly what it was. Remember, they won't, even, they won't even agree that there's such a thing as Tibet. So just keep that in mind. Another... Like, don't you remember when, like, uh, the Donks from the Beastie Boys had like, the Tibetan Freedom Concert? You know, like that whole thing. It, 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 I mean, <laughs> you know, I just can't, I can't believe where we are. Like the 180 on, you know, Colin Kaepernick really got 
he got the raw end of the deal. What about the Uyghurs in the concentration camps? Well, they just do things differently in China. Like, holy shit. You want me, and you want me to take you seriously? Because I don't. Um, yeah, we're going to see. They're gonna, this is going to be tested. I don't imagine, like UFC fighters, uh, an athlete that seems generally aren't the type to really push this. But um, this will be worth asking Dana about. I really hope he does a scrum in New York and I get the chance to go. I don't know how it's going to go with my schedule, but I really hope because that needs to be asked. What is your view on um, on their human rights abuses? By the way, U.S., you know, totally an imperfect country as well. This is my point. I don't even mind people critiquing the various failures and abuses of the U.S. government and the American way of life. Like, it's not going to get better by simply acknowledge or not, not acknowledging them. The difference is we acknowledge them to, to at least to some degree. Right? This is the same thing I see people talk about all the time. Oh, America's got a real racial division. Yeah, it's true that we do. Who could say otherwise? But I've been around to Europe, and I've been through South America and even parts of Asia. It's, obviously, the situation gets a little different in parts of the world. The, 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 these people, they don't like hearing this. They are in dramatic denial about their own problems. And they take, um, like you go to South America. Dude, South America has a de facto caste system. And they're like, yeah, our, our minorities don't seem so upset. Right, because they don't have any ability to speak up. And you take their silence as tacit approval when what it really represents is an inability to effectively speak up. And for all of our problems, which are enormous, we at least have some ability for minority groups here of various different kinds, racial or otherwise, to speak up. And so it creates a lot of friction. But that friction gets, you know, if you think about any moment of civil rights advancement in, in any country, it came after friction, right? So you think lack of friction, hey, everyone's happy. No, you either have a homogenized society or the people who are mar- marginalized have no ability to speak up. Big fucking difference. Uh, okay, well, I'm in a mood, huh? Sorry about that. All right, how much time is acceptable for a reigning champion in any division to go without fighting? Well, it can, it can vary a little bit. I, I tend to think... You know, how, did they get an injury? What kind of injury from fighting, from training? Is it chronic? Is it not chronic? I'm going to say about a year, and then you got to shit or get off the pot. I'm going to give that a year. I think a year is like, fine. You know, you, you wanted a year off to do whatever you were going to do to heal, and um, maybe you didn't get the right fight, or there wasn't enough contenders, or they're waiting for the right moment to put you in the right place. Fine. But, you know, more than a year begins to be a problem for me. Uh, from these four fighters, who would be the first to lose the title? Habib, Valentina, Jones, Amanda. Well, for sure, Habib would have the toughest challenges, so I'd say him. Because Valentina is better than the other flyweights. Jones is better than the other light heavyweights. Amanda's, well, I mean, she's got two belts, right? So, which one do you mean? I guess you mean bantamweight there? <laughs> Maybe, no, maybe Amanda, because Jermaine Duran to me, like, if she can stop the takedown, it becomes interesting. If she can't, well, then who cares? Habib is obviously a tremendous... When, I, when, I, when I'm saying Habib, it's not a function of his ability. It's a function of what he's up against, right? And what he's up against is the best division in the sport. So that makes it kind of hard. Um, I'd say Amanda or Habib. Valentina, I don't know how the hell she's going to lose anytime soon. And Jones, you know... 
it, it, I think the jury's out. Maybe he's slowing down. Maybe his last two performances are just a function of who he was fighting and the way he wanted to approach it. We'll have to see. I don't know. So I'd say Amanda has some threats at 135, I think. Maybe. But Habib has a lot of threats. He's got a lot of threats. As good as he is. He is, and he is, you know, you can make, if not pound for pound number one, top three, top two even, but, uh, but he's got, he, I mean, he's just in a division full of sharks. That, that, that is to me the X factor there. Uh, but for real, this person writes, the baddest MFer. I don't know why I'm censoring myself. I love Jorge and Nate, man. They're great, this person writes. But how is it anyone other than Michael can only see out of one eye bisping? The man's toughness doesn't come out, excuse me, doesn't come around often. Even in a sport predicated on being durable, boy, you ain't lying. Yeah, I, we just we just put a video up about this on uh, Morning Combat. It was part of our questions on our uh, DMs for Donk segment. Yeah, man, I have a whole video about this. Like, if you think I remember, um, I remember after after UFC one ninety three when Ronda Rousey got viciously KO'd by Holly Holm. I remember Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated, I think FS1 and wherever else he is now. He tweeted like, you know, Rousey is going to have a hard time recovering from this. And I thought, oh, that's a silly thing to think because guys like Michael Bisping, he seemed to have no issue with it. And in MMA generally, I don't think you, they don't treat vicious KOs in boxing, they, whether it's superstition, a placebo effect or something. They just seem to linger a lot more in the minds of commentators, the fighters themselves. They seem to carry like this real significant weight that I don't fully understand because in MMA, yes, they carry weight, but we have a little bit more of a dust yourself off and pick yourself up kind of an attitude. You can you can get back out there. Again, there are limits to that, of course, but uh, in general, that's the way I would approach it. And I thought, well, that's kind of silly. And then, dude, she completely changed and then she got, you know, annihilated by Amanda Nunes, and she just quit the sport. Like, she had two losses that were bad, and she just said, fuck it, I'm out. You know, can you imagine if every fighter was that way? You know, and, and again, her particular circumstances are also radically different than every other fighter. So it's not it's not an apples-to-apples situation. I guess all I'm trying to point out is we 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 assume the ability to overcome failure and vicious and, and, the, and the receiving of vicious violence, we assume it's easy to get over it because of men like Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping would like get, you know, and again, I don't mean to say his whole career comes down to always getting knocked out. No, of course, he had many, many great wins. But there was a lot of times, you guys know, he fought a lot of people who, you know, ultimately popped for PEDs and, and he had some bad losses along the way. The Dan Henderson loss, you know, that was a big stage and uh, he lost. And then he just comes right back. And it's not even the case where he would do that after uh, a bad loss necessarily. Even in fights where he got dropped against Anderson Silva, I think in the third round with that knee, however controversial it was. Go back and look at the stats. It was his fourth round stats that were the best of the entire fight. It's just so emblematic of who he is. He has an incredible capacity to not be mentally deterred by setback. And then you match that with the, the, the innate ability that he had and the work ethic that he had. And just this perseverance. And, you know, he obviously took it pretty far, right? To the point where he has, like, permanent, real, observable damage. But on the other hand, who do you know that is bulletproof like that up there like him? I mean, you can count him on your hand. You can count, I mean, he is, he is incredibly special. 
people always used to say, oh, he doesn't have a you know one ace in the hole. He's not the hardest puncher or the fastest athlete or the best jiu-jitsu or the best wrestling or whatever. And I'd be like, okay, well, he, first of all, he's good at all those things, if not great. And secondly, what he has that all those other people don't is he you cannot deter him. He cannot be persuaded through violence to stop. He cannot be. And that is... <laughs> Most people are very dissuaded by violence. Just the littlest amount. Mom spanks a kid. Oh, I don't want any of that anymore, you know? Uh, all the way up to adulthood where you get punched in the face and people don't like it, you know? He... These were all like nothing arguments to him. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch. How can the UFC improve their walkouts? Think about the Dream Pride Boxing WWE. I don't think that they want to improve theirs. I think they want to keep it exactly as they are. Now, they've done a couple of things ESPN has where they got Megan O'Leary right there where the guys are walking out of the tunnel and then they have this, they zoom on what's called a jib. This is like, let me see myself here. So a jib uh, camera is one that's on one of those things. You ever seen like the long stem and there'll be weights on one end and then the camera on the other and then they'll, you know, they'll drop it and then they'll swoop over a crowd. It's called a jib, uh, a jib camera or just a jib and uh, they'll get the jib and then they'll, they'll, you know, they'll pan the whole crowd. You see the person walking out and they're telling a story, you know, that's them trying to do the most they can do because Dana White has sort of this like style of planer is better. Um, I think to their own detriment. And then that's, you know, look, it creates opportunity for Ryzen to go a different direction, for Bellator to go a different direction. Like, how can they improve their walkouts? Man, there's any number of ways they can do them. I just don't think that they believe that their walkouts should be improved any more than what creativity ESPN could potentially bring in terms of just minor fun, but relatively minor adjustments. But, you know, I mean... A lot of ways. What predictions do you have about the Thompson versus Luke fight? Pfft, man, what a great fight that is, huh? Um, well, this one's fairly straightforward in the following sense. Thompson's going to want to keep that at range, stick and move. Luke's going to want to get in there and rough him up with his boxing. That is just the way it's going to go. Luke's probably going to touch him up to the body to slow him down. Probably going to touch him up to the legs to slow him down, right? really get after him, and then he's going to have to do that and, and move. Um, I actually would favor Luke more if it was a five-round fight. The fact that it's three rounds makes it a little harder. Questions about Thompson. How does he deal with that vicious KO loss we just, we just referenced? We're going to see. That was the first real bad one of his career. I'm going to favor Thompson because I just think his stick-and-move style is still pretty good. But everything he does is predicated on speed, reflexes, agility, timing, and he's a little bit older, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see how old Mr. Thompson is. He is 36. He's getting up there, right? He's getting up there. So uh, I'm going to favor Thompson. I'm going to say that Luke might do a little bit better late. What you saw from Luke in a couple of his fights is he takes some time to adjust. If there is, like, when he has an advantage over them, he just runs over people. And he's obviously good at tying up that Anaconda, and he has a good, other good front headlock series. But uh, I think, you know, in the Perry fight, he kind of adjusted over time. That was a very different fight, obviously. Still, that told me something, that I think Thompson's going to really make him have to figure this out a little bit later. Um, but if his athleticism has at all not maintained enough to 
use that kind of a style, uh, Luke is going to tear him up. So that's a really, really great fight. How do you view Zabit versus Cater? Bit harsh to move to Russia for Cater, but good pedigree. If Zabit wins, surely either Holloway or Eliminator with contender, either Aldo Ortega or Rodriguez would be next. Yeah, so they've got that Ortega versus uh, Korean Zombie fight. My hunch is if Zombie wins that, he might get one. We'll see. Ortega, hard to say because she only has, he hasn't fought since the loss. I guess we'll... Also, if Holloway wins, and they might not do that, but if Volkanovski wins, they might. It's It's complicated, but... Um, I really think that's going to come down to uh, Cater sitting behind the jab and then stuffing the takedowns. You cannot, like I mentioned, like one of the issues where um, Adesanya gets into trouble with his takedowns and or his wrestling is the uh, scramble. And Zabit is really good about chain wrestling into scrambles, where a first one doesn't get you, then you kind of trip, then you have to post, then you kind of do it, then you underhook, and then you get taken backwards. He's really kind of good about that. If Cater ends up playing that game, I don't think that he wins. But Cater's got a good jab. If he can really sit behind it, st- uh, stuff, um, break hand. I think really for look I'm, in this one, I'm going to be looking for Cater to sit behind the jab, and then also for uh, wrist control on Zabit. Where uh, if you go back and you look at the takedown defense that Robert Whitaker had in the Jacare fight, what you'll notice is he never really allowed. And, Ty- and Tyron Woodley is good about this too. He doesn't allow people to get a C grip or a gable grip. He controls the wrist and then pulls them apart and then holds them apart as he like moves almost like you're controlling like a <laughs> like a mad girlfriend or something like you know a crazy person at a bar you just hold them there and then you're moving away and then getting away kind of thing um yeah that's what I'm going to be looking for if he can do that I actually think Zabit's pretty beatable easier said than done um but Zabit's going to be all over him I suspect and then Cater will have to sit behind the jab and then eventually move forward into him later, I think. So that'll be interesting, too. All right, maybe a breakdown of UFC 245. So many quality fights on that card. I don't want to get to all of them. So let me do this. Let me just go through and give you like a quick overview so I can get to some other questions. Because last week, I got to like three questions. All right, so let's just go through these. Let me finish reading these questions. Uh, maybe a, a breakdown of UFC 245. So many quality fights on that card with the three title fights. And even Lawler versus Ponzinibbio 2. And maybe even a breakdown of Corey Anderson versus Johnny Walker. And would we have to consider the winner of that a genuine contender for the lightweight strap? I think you mean light heavyweight. And the answer is yes. Okay. Let me give you just a quick uh, summary of what I see in these fights right at this stage. Number one. Usman versus Covington. We've talked about it before. What's the big difference between them? Usman is, does most of his striking damage through ground and pound. Not all of it, but most of it. Um, Co- Covington does not. Covington just runs through a series of control positions where he maintains tight waist. He maintains locked hands. He only breaks them for like halfway choke attempts, but he's always just wrestling, 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 wrestling. He does most of his striking at the feet. Who can impose that style? It'll be interesting. Holloway versus Volkanovski. I need to go back and look how Volkanovski beat Aldo. I remember watching that fight being like, I don't understand what he did. I can only, that like there's sometimes I can watch fights. Most of the time I can watch fights and I can just see what's, you know, I can at least get some kind of beat on what's happening. I might miss, I, I will miss details, but I can at least, you know, get a general Cliff Notes idea of what's happening. With that one, I couldn't. Even that one I had a hard time with, which means he is disguising things really well. So I need to go back and look at that. I think Holloway has his hands full, y'all. 
Volkanovski is about that might be his toughest challenge to date. To be quite honest with you, at featherweight, um, I, if you're a Max fan, he he's got his work cut out for him. Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Duran and me. They already fought. This is the rematch. Nunes took her down the first time. It was one of the fight for the troop shows. And, uh, you know, she just ran through her. On the feet, if she can keep it there, different scenario. Matt Brown is back after the surgery, taking on Ben Saunders. Love this matchup. Love these two guys who kind of get after it. Saunders, to me, has taken a lot of damage. He's a nice guy. He's lost one, two, three, four, five. Uh, five of his last six, including his last three. Uh, all three by finish. Actually, all of his last five by finish. He did beat Jake Ellenberger. Still, Matt Brown has been off a little while, but I consider him a, a very viable contender and obviously a tremendous talent. So, to me, I'm going to lean Matt Brown there just a little bit, but uh, the time off will be interesting. It's just that Ben Saunders has wear, worn a lot of damage. Jessica I is back, taking on Vivian Arujao. I don't have a lot to say about that one. Brandon Moreno taking on Kai Kara France. That should be a hell of a scrap. Moreno coming off of that draw over Askarov. And Kaikara France, another one of these guys from the, uh, from from New Zealand who can just really do mi mixing everything up, fainting, camouflaging. That should be a very competitive scrap. Uh, Punahele Soriano taking on Oscar Pajota. I was not all that impressed with Oscar in his last fight against Adolfo Vieira. I thought he did okay, but not great. Um, but if, correct me if I'm wrong, Soriano's coming off of the Contender Series. Let me just verify that. I gotta tell you, I have not been overly. Uh, I've not been. Uh, yeah, the contender series, y'all. We need to rethink how that's going. They have produced some real winners on that show. Macy Barber's a great one. Um, Sean, um, God, what's his name? Um, the skinny dude. Uh, Jesus, the fuck is his name? <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, but he was sitting out because athletic commissions are. Overzealous. Even USADA has exonerated him. But okay, neither here nor there. They produced a, 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 some. Uh, you know, Greg Hardy came through there, and he seems to be doing well. And other and others too. Those are hardly alone. But there's a lot of guys who've come through there who had dominating wins or quick KOs, like a Tay Edwards, or you saw that um, um, uh, last week in UFC 243, uh, where you're, these guys are winning with quick KO. It's like that's a really terrible way to measure somebody. A one fight quick KO doesn't doesn't tell you shit. You know what I mean? Like, if you didn't know anything about Jose Aldo and you don't think about Conor McGregor and you just saw that, what'd you say about Jose Aldo? You say he sucks or something? Like, you might you might be able to say Conor's better. Okay, whatever. But like, how how much of an assessment can you make of this person? It's just a very very poor way to judge. And tough is not a great system because it doesn't recruit the same blue chip talent anymore that I think Contender Series does. But that method of evaluation is much better. In any event. Uh, let's see. Then you have Robbie Lawler, Santiago Ponza, Nibio. I need to see like like Robbie Lawler has had a 19 year career almost in fight sports. You got to wonder when when the bill might come due on that in terms of slowing down. And it may have come in that Colby, Colby Covington fight. We don't really know. Ponza Nibio is just riding high. He hasn't lost since Lorenz Lark in 2015. Obviously beating Neil Magny, Mike Perry, and Gunnar Nelson in his last three. The Gunnar Nelson one obviously has a bit of controversy. I'm looking for Ponza Nibio to, to see we like is he a top five guy. Is really what that one tells me. And then Irene, Irene Aldana taking on Ketlin Vieira. Ketlin Vieira is a boss and a half. 10-0. and 0. Just to remind you all, her wins are a unanimous decision win over Ashley Evans-Smith. She submitted Sarah uh, McMahon. And then she had a close fight with Kat Zingano, but she won. She is an all-right fighter. And Aldana has a phenomenal jab, quick footwork. Love the way she fights. 
But she has her work cut out for her on that one, too. So that's going to be a great one. Someone says, uh, I ended up in a de- quite the debate the other day regarding Robert Whitaker, who, by the way, I'm a fan of and picked to win. But the point that was raised was this. Despite the weight class, does he have an Achilles heel when it comes to exceptional strikers who can create offense, defense, and can counter-strike going backwards? Can work in the pocket and long range? The last person to beat Whitaker was Steven Thompson, who we all know is an elite kickboxer too. Since then, obviously, Rob switched weight classes. But along the way, never quite encountered a striker of that caliber up until he met Adesanya this past weekend. Are high-level strikers Whitaker's Achilles heel or are both results due to numerous different factors, including but not limited to a poor game plan and at least poor execution of it? So I would actually go a little bit the latter. I'm like, y'all know I might be the world's biggest Adesanya homer. And even I've, and I, and I maintain that that was a relatively easy fight for Adesanya. On the other hand, Part of the reason why it ended up being relatively easy is because it was a bit of a DC Steep A2 situation where, you know, DC has all these tools, especially ones that were like are native to him, and he didn't use them. So let me let me, see, let me explain what I mean. Um, I went back and I watched the Thompson fight in prep for the Adesanya fight. That to me is not a real good demonstration of Whitaker anymore for two reasons. One, one of the things I pointed out in my dissected was if Whitaker is standing, I need to see myself here. If Whitaker is standing orthodox and you're orthodox, he likes to, you can see it get all blurry here, right? Whoop, shallow depth of field, bitches. He can, um, he likes to lead with the jab and then come in, right? That's what he likes to do. And, or, you know, he'll fake with the right and then come over the top with the left. He likes to start with the left side if, we're, if they're both orthodox, okay? Uh, and... What he does is, when he does that, he likes to, you know, some way hit you, either a hook or a straight. And then if he's hitting you on this side, he likes to exit that direction. You saw it against Jacare a million times. Now, Adesanya took away that exit angle and actually met him at Southpaw, and that's how he ended up hitting him so many times. Um, Okay, but the point being is, that's what he likes to do, that exit angle. When I went back and I watched that Thompson fight, Whitaker wasn't even hitting exit angles. Like, he didn't even strike halfway the same. Moreover, yes, he tends to get, like, most of the damage done on Whitaker is not in the kicking range. It's all in the boxing range because he tends to force those tight spaces now through blitzes before I think that was just his natural inclination. So, like, he got dropped with a punch in the Whitaker fight. He got dropped with a punch. Sorry, in the uh, Thompson fight, he got dropped with a punch in the Adesanya fight. So that seems to be a bit of an issue for him. But um, that's not really the way he struck against Adesanya, to be honest with you. And the other part is, like, you look at the punch that landed on him. I'm not here to say Thompson didn't land a nice shot. He did. But it's hard for me to look at that and be like, oh, you know, the weight cut had nothing to do with it. Like, I don't know. He went down, like, kind of easy. And he went down kind of easy in this one, but it was different because he was getting hit at times he wasn't expecting it. One of the major things about Adesanya and why the striking stats don't tell the story is, boy, he's real good, not just about the lean, but he will roll with the punches. So they'll land, but then kind of slip. They don't hit with maximum authority at all. Uh, and this one was landing full, flush, maximal authority when he was least prepared for it. So to me, it's like, I get why people are saying that, um, and there might be some carryover. I think the boxing range, he has good offense in boxing range. Um, I don't know that he has great, I don't know that he has great defense in boxing range. That, that might be too broad of a statement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put, I'm going to put an asterisk on that because I need to really go and evaluate it more, but I made this point. And I got torn up on Twitter for it, but I'm, I'm going to stand by it. 
Uh, I'm not saying that this has always been the case. I'm going to say it's truer now. But I don't know who slips a punch better at middleweight than Kelvin Gastelum. Maybe in the UFC. That's a little bit of a different claim, but certainly at middleweight. People are like, oh, well, Kelvin gets torched. Well, right. He might rely on it too much, and he might not have other forms of defense to complement it enough. But in terms of just the raw ability to slip his punches, show me who did better against Adesanya in terms of that. Because it sure as fuck wasn't Whitaker. Right? Not at all. Not at all. And you saw you saw series after series, entry after entry from Gastelum doing this. Gastelum didn't used to have great head movement. He has really dramatically, categorically improved. He is so good at it now. And I wonder if um, partly it's just that blitzing style doesn't allow him to rotate and face. Part of that blitzing style just puts him out of position if it doesn't work. Because a lot of times when he was blitzing, you saw guys you know, cover their face and, and do that kind of a thing. And Adesanya never did. Adesanya leaned and then looked the whole time. And I think Whitaker's style of defense is sort of like, it's not this or that or the parry. It's just, I'm going to get you to cover and then get out of the way. Um, and and, I, and but what happens if they don't cover? What happens if they don't cover and then switch to southpaw and then bop? Then what? Then where's your defense, right? So that to me is the issue. So I would say um, the jury is a little bit still out. You also have to understand it's like, oh, well, his, 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 uh, his Achilles heel is high-level strikers. Yeah, but what if he wrestles? He didn't wrestle. I couldn't believe he didn't wrestle. I was so shocked he didn't wrestle. If you don't wrestle, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you might get knocked the fuck out by Israel Adesanya. Like, he's that good. But it, to me, it's like, I, 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 I don't know, y'all. Like, people are burying him too quickly, Whitaker. There's still degrees of improvement that you can see from him and, and ways in which he can retailer the fight. He was like, I didn't feel like I needed the wrestling. I mean, I wonder how he feels about that now, but it's interesting. How well do you think Gary Tonin would fare with the highest level of opponent in the UFC like a Habib? Personally, I don't see Gary getting pinned ever. His transition to heel hooks from the takedowns uh, while being taken down are devastating and new. They're not new. The transitions are new. The um, Some of the other stuff is not new. Um, the answer is, I don't think he'd do all that well. Um, remember what the, the key to a heel hook. You have to control not merely the leg. You have to control the far side leg, right? So they can't turn and spin. Or if they do, you can follow them, and they're limited in how far they can go. Um, so it's not just attaching to one. It's attaching to one and limiting the other. And you have to get both hands on the heel hook. It is true we have not seen super elite heel hookers in uh, the UFC. Even someone like Jacare came up. I'm sure Jacare's heel hooks are awesome. But you haven't seen somebody who's like been like a modern... You know, inside Senkaku, you know, uh, 50-50 type heel hooker. You've just not, there's not been a lot. I mean, maybe Ryan Hall, right? But he, and he goes for them. Obviously, he went one on BJ Penn. But you have to do kind of what he did, which you have to get right to it. Because if you don't, and you don't really get right to it, um, the two hands being occupied in MMA. I took a Gary Toten seminar. Even in that seminar, he acknowledged the two hands being locked to it. Or even if you're in the gi, you still need two hands for the toehold. Uh, that that could be very compromising in MMA. You'd have to have a really specific way of going about it. You could do it, uh, but the idea that he would go like 
Like the, like Dottie, that he would go in there and like Habib wouldn't know what to do about it. I I'm a little bit. Uh, I find that hard to believe. Also, Habib again. Habib doesn't try to fully force positions. He goes to halfway positions where he can control through the wrist and the rides. That one stops a lot of your offense and doesn't overcommit him positionally. He doesn't really want to take your back. He wants to cover your hip and then control uh, cross wrist or same side wrist. Break you down, pound on you. You move. He just readjusts the position and then gets tight waist and continues to wrestle. It's hard to initiate modern leg locking techniques under those kinds of considerations. And then you have to commit both hands to him. There's no, there's one arm guillotines. There's one arm rear naked chokes. There is no, to my knowledge, there's no one arm heel hook. Do you think Rumble Johnson is going to have a successful comeback? There's no way to know. Could the BMF belt just really be the new 165 weight class? And will Dana surprise us all? You think Dana's forward thinking like that? I mean, maybe. Maybe. Doubt it. Let's see. I just got a hair in my mouth from my beard. Uh, is Crone Gracie being moved along too quick? 5-0 and and Cub being on his sixth. Why the rush? Why can't we get a Ryan Hall versus Crone um, match? Well, you might. They keep going the way they're going. I'd say the following. Um, no. I, I wonder... I wonder about this one. I actually look at the odds. They have so I ha, so a couple listeners called in yesterday and really disagreed with me. Fine, I don't. I'm not making a prediction on this one. Like I don't really know, but I just feel like I'll admit I'll put my hands in the air. I really like Cub Swanson. I like him as a person. I like him as a fighter, and I recognize he's on a skid. And I recognize he's been submitted before. He got submitted in an under round by Hanato Moicano. Like, you're asking me if this goes to the ground, who's going to win? Crone Gracie's going to win. On the other hand, Moicano doesn't have the same um, problems in his game that Crone does. This is not an insult. This is just a fact. Crone striking is like 1999-esque. It's hands up, walk forward, flat-footed, use that, like, oblique horse kick jump to get into range, grab behind the waist, and then take him down with a trip or something like that. That's all it is. There's no real striking to speak of. You know, if he fought Josh Emmett, who would you pick? I'd pick Josh Emmett 10 times out of 10. Good lateral movement, stick and move, punch with the jab, and then get out of the way. Like, I don't know how Crone's going to beat a guy like that. Honestly, I really don't. Um, At least not the the, the iteration we saw against Alex Caceres. So to me, it's like, can Cub fight that way? Only time will tell. I'm not really ready to bury the guy. On the other hand, I grant, on the ground, uh, Crone is awesome. So like to me, is he? are they moving Crone along too quick? I don't think so. Like his ground game is so far ahead of everyone else's, and his stand-up is so far behind that there's no point in really waiting. <laughs> I, mean, kinda, I mean, I'm not saying it won't get better, but it more or less is what it is. So fuck it, just roll the dice. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? I'd rather not you ask the equivalent of Chuck Norris jokes for questions. Played out. If and when John Jones goes to heavyweight, do you think he will stay the same weight or try to bulk up and gain the power he lacks? Ooh, thank you for your all your great work. Well, thank you for watching and for the question. I think he would want to be like a cruiserweight, right? Still nimble. 
Who's the most improved fighter of 2019? Wow, most improved fighter of 2019. Who? There's somebody I'm not thinking of, right? Um, Adesanya? <laughs> Honestly? Maybe Adesanya? I mean, he wasn't... As good as he was on Saturday night, he was not as... Like, when he started 2019, he was not as good as that night. Like, not even close. I said it before. You go look at the Wilkinson fight. His takedown defense is not great. Then you look at the Vittori fight. You're like, it's better, but needs work. Then you go look at the Tavares fight, and you're like, wow, it's gotten a lot better. Then you look at the Brunson fight, and you're like, dude, it's good. And then you go and look at the uh, Silva fight, not really an issue. And then the Gastelum fight, and you're like, dude, it is, his, his takedown defense is excellent. Right? Um, again, the scrambles are still an issue for him. But, I, you know, and I, granted, some of what I'm telling you happened in 2018, but you get the idea pretty well. Pretty nice there. Specialist versus well-roundedness. Uh, well, speaking about Habib, you said the theory. Pe- you said that the theory people had about fighters having a well-rounded skill set being a good thing wasn't true. That being a dangerous specialist like Habib was better. Isn't being a general still valuable though? GSP has a good skill set potentially defeat Habib, and he may be one of the best examples of what a model of well-roundedness looks like. My own theory is that in a population of fighters that are mostly generalists, the specialists will have an advantage, but the reverse is also true. Right? Great question. Really appreciate this. Here's what I'm saying to you. I don't want to. I don't want what I'm saying to get lost. Like I'm saying, you don't have to train striking or jujitsu. I mean, I just spoke about Crone having these extraordinary abilities, yes, but real liabilities too. That's not what I'm talking about. Understand the truth about Habib. Habib's wrestling, and that that we've gone through his game a million times. He is, insofar as we can tell, the best in the world at that. But the point about what I'm trying to raise is, you know, he was able to stand with Iaquinta and jab him out. He was able to drop Connor, and you can like you can find a lot of excuses. The guy's what thirty and zero nearly at this point, whatever he is, and he's never been dropped. He's never been dropped. Well, I gotta tell you, you're doing again. He's spending a lot of time wrestling. He's not spending an utterly insignificant amount of time standing either, and it's not like he hasn't fought guys who couldn't put him down. Um, he's been hurt a couple times on the feet. I grant you, he kind of seems to better understand his limits. I'm not telling you he's like an awesome striker. I'm just telling you he's got enough of the other things where he isn't. He doesn't have these dramatic liabilities, and then he can bring that incredible uh, um, thing to life. I'm just pointing out. I'm watching these like contender series fights, and I'm watching these regional card fights, and everyone can kind of do everything, and then there's nothing interesting about them. Wow, you're really you're you know you're good at jujitsu. You're good at striking. You have decent cardio. Great. Now what? Well, you're not going to beat anybody really good that way. You got to have an ace in the hole. It so turns out that the ace in the hole for St. Pierre is number one, like he's more than well rounded. He's well rounded and excellent at everything, right? So, like, calling him well rounded is true, but a really limited way of, of imagining and understanding his abilities. And the other part is, you know, yes, if someone is so far tilted, even if they have some foundational elements, going back the other way can be beneficial. But I would argue, like, it's his specialization in the jab. Dude, people want to talk about it. St. Pierre's jab is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. His takedown defense is phenomenal. He's well-rounded, but he's got a couple of tiny pieces that are consequential that are also specialized, right? Like, how good is his arm bar from the guard? Not great, right? Not great. Didn't really go for it. Not, 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 how, how awesome is his triangle? Not awesome. His Kimura better. We've seen his Kimura a few times. Um, but you know, they're not like they're not like super awesome. But his jab, 
Well, that's that's tremendous. His sprawl, his down blocking, that is extraordinary, right? That kind of a thing. So what I'm going to say to you is, if you want to really beat people in modern MMA, look at Adesanya. Foundationally, his wrestling's gotten a lot better. His cardio's really good. But that ace in the hole is, dude, he can set you on fire if your striking is not on point. And Robert Whitaker, going back to what I said before, is a good striker. But when you're dealing with somebody with that kind of ability, what are you supposed to do? You know, what are you supposed to do? Uh, let's see. Do you think facing Askren and railing against the type of trash talking made it impossible for Masvidal to remain on good terms for Colby? It's funny, people forget this. I think it was in the scrum before... I could have this wrong, but I think it was the one before the Till fight. People were asking him about, like, he, you know, he was like, I don't like people who put on an act and blah, blah, blah. And people were like, aren't you friends with Colby? He's like, Colby's different. You could tell he was covering for him, given how they feel about each other now. Or do you think it's it's possible Jorge and Colby are working together to build up a future fight? I don't think so. I don't really get a read that that is some kind of a... Um, uh, some kind of a... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? I don't think that they're working that out. Do you feel Joanna's breast augmentation is playing a role in her weight cut? We're going to be on this a million. There's another question about it. If Johnny Walker beats Corey Anderson in similar fashion to his other fights, does he jump up to the contender spot at 205? If not, maybe a fight with Thiago Santos after that, and who would you favor in that matchup? Jenna Walker beats Corey Anderson. Yeah, let me look at the rankings here. I think I took them down like a dumbass. Uh, the rankings have him. Where do they have him? At 10? Uh, well, it's weird, right? Because Cormier is gone. Santos is going to be in rehab for a while. Smith is sort of in the floating in the ether. Dominic Reyes is going to be fighting Chris Weidman. Okay. Jan Blahovich is still kind of waiting, maybe. Gustafson seems out. Then you got Anderson, and then Vulcan. Uh, he did just beat, what, Alir Latifi, I think? Maybe somebody else? Glover is back in the winning track, but it doesn't look likely. Yeah, maybe Jonah Walker's got some work to do. Oh, isn't Rakic going to fight uh, Vulcan Uzdemir? I think I read that. I think I read that. Um, no, I don't know. If Corey Anderson... Maybe only because it could be an exciting way to jump, and they do it. Like in terms of okay, from a ranking standpoint, the answer is pretty clearly probably not. But from an availability, fresh matchup, uh, and I think this is the point. Of like, why is John Jones going after Adesanya? You know, John Jones's options for big fights have been kind of limited. I think um, number one, I would say you lost the core. He, he, I mean, I'm, I'm putting it like it's his fault, but I'm just saying the facts. Cormier fight, gone. Um, let's see. Cormier fight, gone. Cain Velasquez fight, gone. Stipe could happen. We'll see how things go. It's not a given, but maybe. Uh, Rockhold fight's not going to happen. The Weidman fight could happen, right? But he has to beat Reyes. Let's say he doesn't beat Reyes. What happens there? Brock Lesnar fight didn't happen, right? So there's a bunch of big fights that he was kind of eyeballing that didn't happen. Now, there's some other ones. Maybe he goes and fights Francis and... And and what maybe the whole heavyweight thing is a thing he does. I, I don't really know, but part of I, part of me just kind of feels like, you know, 
Um, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's fake, but you look at around like what where where are your big options? Like I mean that's a champ champ fight, right? No one's really talking about that in that particular regard. Um, I, part of me just wonders if that is what's what's pushing this. So Johnny Walker might be able to recreate some of that magic, but we'll see. All right, look, you made a big stink about ESPN not covering the NBA China controversy properly due to their conflict of interest. Do you feel as though? This comes across as hypocritical coming from you after you kept quiet about the controversy surrounding Lloyd Irvin following the rape controversy. Well, not a, no. Um, probably a little more I could have said at the time, but I was at another school that was embroiled in the middle of the controversy, um, which either would have forced me to stop training there, which I suppose I could have. Um, but the bigger issue was the two guys who went on trial had no problem talking about them. They were ultimately acquitted, which seems to be an ultimately uh, enormous miscarriage of justice. Talked openly about uh, JT Torres and Keenan Cornelius leaving, which they did. And uh, the old reports of Irvin being involved in sexual assault. By the way, I spoke about this on the air yesterday. Um, so for what it's worth, and you can look up the archives on, the, on uh, SiriusXM. Spoke openly about this yesterday. Took calls on it. And the other part about it is nothing ever really came from it. There were some people who left and um and there were some things that came to light dj jackson's background right i mean i suppose in the end probably a little bit more i'll say that probably a little bit more i could have said but you're comparing an individual situation where someone didn't face criminal prosecution although they faced a bit of a public relations meltdown to put it quite mildly uh but there was no real legal uh ramification for the two guys who were arrested who seemed to me guilty of sin they were acquitted for for better or for worse uh and that is tantamount to a government program widely documented rounding up quite literally millions of muslims and putting them in concentration camps it seems like if individual situations uh require a degree of courage to speak out about you might be right probably a little bit more i would have said uh this is my point about the China situation. There are probably any number of scenarios that some of us just either don't have an opinion on, um, don't really care to weigh in on. Like, am I really going to weigh in on the Kurds on this podcast? I'm really not going to. It was, go back to what I said earlier. It's like, if there isn't a moral layup bigger than that one, I don't know what is. Like, it's a very easy thing to say um, in terms of the scale of the crime and the scale of the abuse and the scale of the wrongdoing. Like, we're all we're all probably fallen to a degree and we're all going to make mistakes. It seems like that's an easy one to avoid for me, but no, like I talked openly about it yesterday on the air, like in real time, maybe, but, uh, there was a conflict of interest in talking about it, given that it was a lawyer of an affiliate school I was training at that was separating and had, uh, any number of issues. Plus we all aided in the reports with Brent Brookhouse related to them. Like if anything, I helped in that particular regard. So probably could have said a little bit more, maybe, but do I feel particularly that I got it all wrong at relative to these considerations about a government repressing 1.4 billion people? No, I do not. Do you think we will... What? Do you think we will blank large agencies put on their own media... Oh, do you, do you think we will see other large agencies put on their own media days like Dominance MMA? I don't think so because not many of them have that many of these. Like Dominance MMA has a ton of people, so they're in like all high-ranking 
for the most part. So they're able to make that work. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Like, what Balanji's got like some people. Would, would they do it? Like, I don't think so. Also, you have to always remember, like, why did dominance do it? Yes, to generate media. But it's probably a show of force too, right? Like, look how popular we are. Um, you should come and be one of our clients kind of a thing. Uh, let's see if I can get to one or two more, then I got to go. How could Usman really think his fight with Colby is bigger than the BMF title? Is it me? Or does Jorge have something special for Nate Diaz? Oh, there's a huge line of questions here. Um, how could Usman really think that his fight with Colby is bigger than the BMF title? How could the champion of the weight class think that his title is the most important one in the weight class? I can't imagine. I understand your question. It's a good faith one. But you got to imagine these champions, they live and die in their own mind. All these fighters, they live and die in their own mind. It's going to be hard to convince a champion that his belt is not the most significant one in the weight class. It's just, it's not going to be done. Uh, and then secondly, is it me or does Jorge have something special for Nate Diaz? Do you think he still has the touch of death? Uh, well, Nate has quite a chin, so we'll have to see. I do favor Jorge to win that fight, but I guess we'll have to see. All right, let me do one more. I've done this John Jones not liking me thing a million times. Would it be ridiculous? Would it be a ridiculous thing to ask you what are your top five reasons as to why John Jones doesn't like you? I couldn't name one, but uh, it seems like you're his biggest advocate among those who cover MMA. Right. This is the whole funny thing. When I was doing the live chat before on MMA fighting, I was routinely accused, maybe some fairly, a lot of it not, but some, of carrying water for the guy. Uh, and it was during that time that I must have said something. God only knows what. Never had never had it clarified, by the way. Um, so I must have said something that pissed him off. And then this is what the situation is. This is what I tried to tell you guys about this, this chapter of my career. Um, it's like, and this is why I've like super dialed back all my interviews. It's like, if if you have to say things, and again, I don't know exactly what it was he's mad about. So maybe it's something I did that I, was bad and, and it could be clarified to me. And people have sent me pieces of individual criticism I've made of him. Yeah, so what? I, I mean, that doesn't seem to me worthy of that kind of response, but whatever. People are going to treat situations like they want to treat. My only point being is... Um, uh, you had to make a choice. How much do you want access? How much is access central to what you do? And I've just decided I want a little bit, but not enough that I have to come up on here and tell you things I don't believe. Um, and that me that's going to reduce my profile in the sport, and that's going to reduce my ability to get bigger interviews and have fighters like me. But I don't care. So the answer is I'm sure I said something critical about him. Uh, through all those series of missteps he was making, and he didn't like it. And that's his, by the way, I said it before, that's his right. Like, you don't want to talk to me, you don't have to, you know. They don't, they don't, they don't owe me anything either. A lot of media think that they get owed something. They don't owe me anything. All right. Uh, I gotta do this fucking call. Last one. Last one. Who made the suggestion decision to pair you with Brian? <laughs> it's too late to change their mind. First of all, people love Brian, number one. Secondly, it was my decision. That was 100% my call. When I was coming up with the concept of what to do next, it was me and it was him. And uh, it just so happened to work out and, you know, we ended up at Showtime. But that was my call. And I think, I think people are slowly beginning to figure out, like, what it is that is so awesome about Brian. Knowledgeable about, about boxing, knowledgeable about MMA. And, you know, while I'm overly serious and surly, 
He is the opposite. He's fun loving, blah, 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 blah. All that kind of a stuff. You know, he is, uh, he's great like that. So it's a nice mix and it makes for a, a show where we get into serious topics. We have a little fun at the same time. And really he's responsible for that levity on the other side. So I couldn't have picked anyone better and I'm th- thrilled to have him. People are like, oh, he, you, you could tell Luke doesn't like Brian. I'm like, I'm the guy who picked him. <laughs> Me? Okay. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. Like the video. Subscribe to the channel. We'll be back next time on time, I promise. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you so much for paying attention. And until next time, let's see. Stay frosty. <laughs>